computers. This is Intelligent Performance. Welcome to Intelligent Performance, where we are fanatical about excellence in human endeavor. And today, I have a pleasure of welcoming Noah Healy onto the show, a nuclear engineer, a mathematician, a programmer, and someone who thinks he's come up with a new system to help revolutionize capital markets as you know them right now. And today, we go into detail about what and how do commodities get traded in the current system. And we start to think about what would intelligent performance look like if we really took that kind of approach and what are the what are the flaws in the current system and how could they be changed? Noah is a super smart guy. This is a pretty detailed, heavy episode. But if you're interested in the financial markets, if you're interested in what the future could look like and some of the biases, you're gonna learn a bucket load in this episode. So hang in there, thanks for joining us, and let's dive straight in. Noah, thanks so much for joining us. And where I'd love to start this conversation is really What's your take on intelligent performance in your domain and kind of your space? So in my space, intelligent performance is is pretty easy to define. It's the condition in which supply and demand uh, meet in accordance and also the the two sides, the producers and the consumers, uh, sort of knew ahead of time as far as possible where that was going to be so they could each plan their own businesses around a common understanding. So you've focused or developed this kind of expertise in the commodity space, right? In terms of um, the trading between two parties. And these days it's become incredibly complex where you've got hedges and a whole world of bunch of different financial mechanisms to kind of um, mitigate risk on both sides of of the of the of the deal, as it were. Tell us what are some of the what are some of the issues I would imagine from a fairly um, let's say novice perspective here, and someone who's not in not clued up in about this space. It would it would suggest that we would have a well functioning marketplace at the moment, which can navigate a lot of this complexity. But from your perspective, what do you see are some of the challenges in, in that that commodity world? Uh, well, the biggest challenge is that that perspective that you just presented is quite common, including among most of the people that are in that space. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, having more capacity doesn't always lead to better outcomes. Um, so if you if you have too much to eat and then you eat the too much, then you get overweight and that's not good for you. Um, right. And so what's, well we think about and talk about markets in terms of uh, buyers and sellers. That's not the same as the producers and consumers. And the market model that we presently have is actually properly divided between what are known as price makers and price takers. So price makers are the people who sort of live inside the markets. They trade voluntarily and profitably um, and they're more knowledgeable than the average market participant. Price takers are those who trade to some extent involuntarily with the marketplace. They have a different productive business that they need to operate and de-risk. And so they come to the marketplace in order to uh, hedge or crystallize their risks 
um, and and sort of be able to plan their actual expertise, which is, you know, farming or mining or, or mm. logging or fishing, uh, or on the other side, their expertise of operating a mill or a factory or, or some similar type of thing. And computers don't sort of evenly value uh, those two roles. Uh, so price takers don't get much advantage from having computer systems operating by the microsecond uh, because they're they're running a business they have their own conscious you know pace that they, they, they can't make decisions on a microsecond by microsecond basis yeah but price makers get a lot of advantage from cleaning down the time slices being able to come up with much larger in incomes being able to sort of simultaneously read every newspaper that's written and, and monitor all te television stations at all times and so what we've seen over the last several decades now is the economic cost of the marketplace is actually increasing so the financial system is growing around the world and we've also seen the markets themselves becoming less stable um uh, m while while the volatility is on average down, every once in a while we get incredible spikes, and it's those incredible spikes that are precisely what the the price takers need to avoid. And and as those become more wild and more frequent, uh, the price the price takers take worse and worse pricing, and that leads to lower and lower economic growth so effectively i think what you're saying is the odds are stacked in favor of the big corporations and particular financial institutions which are effectively setting the marketplace up is that would that would that be kind of the essence of what you're saying um yes although it's, I think, important to realize that to some extent, the odds have always been sort of shaded in their favor. And to some extent, mm -hmm. they need to be because they are providing a service that that is valuable and they need to have something for that service. Yeah. But what we've seen is a technological shift. So these corporations didn't invent computers and they're not, you know, cranking out the, the, the microchips, but... Um, Imagine, you know, if you had a casino and everybody had to go to the casino and uh, the roulette, you know, everybody played roulette and roulette has the green, you know, the house edge. Mm. Of course, the house has an edge. But what if when you put on a new coat of paint, some green flecks splattered on the on the thing. And so now more of the roulette wheel is green. And every time they redesign the interior of the casino, more and more of the roulette wheel turns green. It, it becomes a much, much worse deal. Um, and so the house is going to be making more and more money, but the players mm. are going to be less and less happy. And that's, it's, it's, it's sort of an accidental evolution almost. But probably not that accidental. No, it's to be well, frank. A, a lot of the people I've spoken to within the industry are unaware that this is going on. Yeah. Um, when it's pointed out to them and their faces shoved in it, some refuse to see it. Um, right. And some say, oh, well, you mean I'm making more money? Well, that must be right. Uh, so there's not <laughs> a lot of, 
there's not a lot of oh that is happening and that wasn't earned and what can i do about it it's, uh, it, it sounds very similar to i guess any large corporation though in terms like, even if you just say like government you know they, they introduce tax or you you can introduce some sort of tax um in one state, as an example, and then that kind of justifies, oh, well, look, Texas are doing or California are doing it, so why not? And there's that kind of incrementalism towards that. All of a sudden, then you've got, you know, tax on this and tax on that and tax on getting out the out the bath, et cetera. There's, like, tax on everything. So tell us um, what I'm kind of puzzled by. Just highlight, so I, I, get the, I get that the the power or the, as you said, the casino edge is in the favour of the financial institutions, which are effectively providing that marketplace for a commodity exchange to take place. But in many ways, they're also taking a significant amount of risk. So arguably, there's certainly a value in that, right, in terms of what they're doing. Your proposal, or what, what are you thinking in terms of how do you move away from this? Because it sounds like you're trying to incentivize or encourage the big end of town who have vested interest, have no real, it sounds like, benefit to, to to change the system no would that be fair or or do you think there is a, well, a win-win so if there was if there was no benefit then obviously i'd just be sort of beating my head against the wall and that would be pointless so what i've discovered is that there's actually a large enough gap that there's a way for a subset of the current players to actually gain a great benefit from building a better marketplace so by creating a system in my model where we go away from price takers and price makers and a sort of two-sided system mm. to a three-sided system of producers, consumers, and sort of negotiator advisors. And so the experts among the current price makers can go into this negotiation advisor role. And instead of just making money off of the blunders of the specific people they're able to sort of knock off uh, while simultaneously attempting to defend themselves against other people with their skill set and resources that are mm -hmm. trying to knock them off. Um, they instead operate in a smaller but more profitable marketplace where they work out what these prices are. And then those prices are used by the entire population of the price takers um, and so you effectively are granted very low cost, very high levels of leverage to give you very, very high rates of return on your investment capital as compared to modern markets. Um, but it, in that model, the the knowledge holders to think to talk about the third party, they wouldn't necessarily. It, sound, it sounds like the marketplace would be far more efficient and would then have less volatility in total. Is that correct? Precisely correct. In fact, what you're getting paid for is your ability to reduce the volatility of the marketplace. Okay. So it's more like, to use a, a simplified example, it's almost like you, you're talking about, it's, it's the difference of, of a lawyer charging on an hourly basis, where they're incentivized to take ages, not innovate, do whatever, versus a lawyer being on subscription whether they're paid a fixed amount or fixed retainer, regardless of the amount of work they do, would that, would that be kind of similar? That's yeah, that's a that's a very similar notion. Um, this is a this is a different way for the profession of financial expert to have a relationship rather than having counterparty relationships, which are oppositional. Um, yeah. they're actually engaged in this 
attempt to create a cooperative advisory relationship uh, where they're trying to get a bigger chunk of that valuable advisory position by being smarter, quicker, more accurate, and so on. So you're saying it's more profitable, but given that currently they get to sit on the what was your the price take no price maker side, which if they can fix it in their interest and they can get manufacture wild swings, then the payday could be far more significant. Is that is that correct? But albeit maybe less predictable. Uh, uh, so not really. So the because in my model they're operating inside of a paramutualish, actually posimutualish system. So it's like a horse race, but instead of the house taking a rake, the house is actually pouring money in from the commissions that come in. Mm -hmm. um, by controlling the buy-in cost, you can actually control the average rate of return for people operating in this sort of speculative negotiation system. And so right now, average rate of returns for for sort of financial investors is pretty even across the board in the various sectors because right. when stocks are making too much money people pile into stocks and even out the returns so figure 10 15 percent returns is sort of the you know bottom to top end of of action and doing persistently doing much better than that top end is extraordinarily difficult uh, these right. windfalls you're talking about is actually how they get these high returns in the first place, averaging out with their losses. This allows markets that would have average returns that are basically any number you plug in when you set the place up. So you could have a market that has 100% average returns as its ordinary operation. And, and that works by making it much, much less expensive to invest in that marketplace for similar sized cash outputs of value. So talk me through a practical example. Let's break this down into like, let's say we're in the coffee business, right? So okay. so I don't have a sort of off the head, top of my head, but let's say coffee is a billion dollars a year and we're going to we're gonna trade it on a weekly basis. Yeah. We're going to trade 50 weeks a year. So- And sorry, who, just so to make it really simple. So as in I'm a- coffee importer let's say would that be would that be fair i'm, I'm trading a billion dollars of coffee um well i think the entire coffee market work is working at this level okay um, cool so so in that case there'd be about 20 million dollars of coffee being traded every week right and so we need a price for each one of these weeks sure um Let's say this system is operating at that 1% commission and 100% rates of return. Um, that means in a given week, there's about $200,000 that's up for grabs. Uh, so somebody puts in one of these negotiation ideas that's go going, that's claiming because of how much information is in there, a 5% mm -hmm. share of this, of this number. Of the 200 grand? of the 200 grand. So okay. they're claiming $10,000. Um, so how much do they have to spend to get that 10,000? Um, it, 
if if the system decides to charge them ten thousand dollars for it, and then they get their ten thousand plus the other ten thousand, then that's a hundred percent rate of return. If the system decides to charge them one thousand dollars for it, then they get the ten thousand plus their one thousand back, and that's a thousand percent rate of return. So by deciding what rate of return you want to have, mm-hmm. you calculate how much you have to charge this person to make that rate of return what they think they're going to earn and you charge them that amount of money. And when they turn out to be correct, they get paid the amount they think they deserve. If they're partially correct, they get partial credit. If it turns out that half their information was valuable. And so instead of being worth $10,000, it's worth $5,000. Then maybe they get 15,000 back on the 10,000 instead of 20,000 back on the 10,000. Okay, so we're going to have to make this a little simple because you lost me in there, Noah. So let's okay. say, who am I? There's the three parties here. Let's say there's the there's the coffee bean grower out of South America, let's say. Then there is the there's Starbucks on the other side who are looking to purchase. And then there's an advisory. Let's call them Michael's advisory for now. Okay. And are you an investor? Is that what you're saying in terms of this? Are you a speculative investor in this kind of transaction? So Michael's advisory, you would be you'd be a speculative investor. You'd be you'd be guessing about what these prices were going to be doing. You're not going to okay. buy coffee. You're not going to sell coffee. You don't care. You don't need any of that. You just think yeah. you know about coffee. I'm running a coffee CDM, so I don't have any opinions at all. I don't make the stuff. I don't use the stuff. I don't know what the prices are. I don't care. You are the, so you are the marketplace. You're the place where we're going to do business, basically. Right. I'm just running the game. Okay, so you come in and you say, I think that, you know, it's going to be $3 a pound. Yeah. Uh, and other people also think things, and it turns out that you're right. It winds up at $3 a pound. Um, so that week, my CDM says, this week, the price is $3 a pound. Next week, it's a little bit more than that. It goes up for a little while, then it goes down for a little while. Yeah. Uh, as sort of, you know, growing season in South America starts happening. Um, Starbucks and the South Americans say, cool, you know, we want to sell 20 million at $3 a pound. Mm-hmm. We want to buy 20 million at $3 a pound. Mm-hmm. It's not just Starbucks. You know, other people also want to buy it, add it all yeah. up. I take in these two things and I balance them out and I say, okay, here are the contracts. Starbucks, these like 400 different farms are shipping you however many tons each. Uh, you know, yep. Michael's side, you know, special barista, the ton you bought is coming from those guys. You know, I, I just hand out all the contracts. Yeah. And I then collect the commissions on those on on getting those contracts traded. Yep. And I take that commission money and I say, okay, we earned, you know, uh, two hundred thousand uh, dollars. You know, let's say it's at, it's actually four hundred thousand dollars. I take two hundred thousand dollars for myself. I okay. take the other two hundred thousand and I say, okay, this pours into the into the the pool with all the money you guys bet on where the price was. And Michael, your three was completely correct. So here's your share of that $200,000 plus your share of the investment money. It's twice the amount that you paid in the first place. 
congratulations, here's $20,000 on a $10,000 investment. Oh, yeah. And so, and how would, a, let's say, a Starbucks in this example, they'd be looking at all these different advisories. There's Michael Advisory, Bob's Advisory, Tom's Advisory. They don't Why have to look would- at any of that. The CDM integrates Michael, Tom, Dick, Harry, Janet, yeah. Sue, and everything else <laughs> into a single price. And what we're doing at the CDM is we're figuring out, okay, this price is 3% Michael and 10% Janet and 1% Sue and Fred was just 100% wrong. And, you know, people basically had to pay to get him back. So he's at zero. And and just we're doing all that division out. We're creating right. a, a single unified price that's been negotiated. Starbucks can have their experts throw in their guess of where the price they think it's going to be. The, yep. It's cheap enough those farms in South America can throw their guesses in to where they think the price is going to be. Each week is independently negotiated. So uh, if if the price needs to take a big step change, the price can take a big step change. Um, if it would be better for everyone concerned for what looks like a big step change coming down the line to be turned into a smooth change, which it probably yep. would be better for everybody, then people can figure out exactly what the best smooth change from the good times today to the bad times a month from now should look like. Right. So let's step out of the detail for a moment. You're a mathematician. You, you come from a you know, nuclear engineer background. What was it that kind of hooked you around this whole challenge or an, an issue? What, what is it about this which stands out to you as like, oh, yeah, this is a problem worth solving? Uh, so I was thinking about the problem of finding consensus on networks. And so I was looking at internet where we have an incredible profusion of opinions and random noise, but it's very difficult to sort of get stable, meaningful signals out of. Uh, I was looking at corporations where, again, uh, companies gather enormous amounts of data that they stick on hard drives, and then they never look at it because it's just too expensive and difficult Mm. to sort of figure out what's on those hard drives. Mm. Uh, I was looking at IoT and, and satellites and a profusion of sensors being wrapped around the planet um, and having a great deal of disagreement about what sorts of, of measurements, but also a lot of potential to be able to do more sensitive weather and climate analysis and so on. And so in the context of these sorts of problems, it occurred to me that finding entropy minimizing optimization solutions on networks was a potentially fruitful and useful thing to think about. I was pretty surprised to discover that the markets that we're using aren't a very good idea anymore and that there's much better ideas and that I actually stumbled over one. That's cool. And in terms of the AI piece in this, you've gone kind of down, obviously it's prevalent now and it sounds like it's got massive potential to either disrupt or or even accentuate the the imbalance that the paint flicking onto the roulette, roulette way, wheel it could be even more like, yeah. Yeah. So one of the yeah one of the issues that exists with AI is essentially figuring out how to get it to do what we want it to do, um, mm. and that that problem space uh, is currently being handled 
within the generative AI community, basically like by treating the AIs as uh, kind of faceless minions uh, or, mm. or like, or like, you know, off world outsourcing agents where you call up an artist and ask it to draw something and then it does and sends it back to you. Um, but while the current crop of, of AIs we have is, is pretty tame and doesn't have much capacity, that's all changing pretty rapidly. And that kind of social approach, there's never going to be as much human attention and human interest necessary to corral the sort of industrial silicon once it gets rolling if we just keep doing this until things go sideways on us. And we're already seeing that in the financial uh, space because as it happens, the primary traders in our marketplaces are gamified AI systems that are attempting to play the marketplace in order to make themselves money. And so they do not have any of our ordinary human concerns about producing a functional economy. They're, they're explicitly exploiting uh, timing issues, uh, news confusion, human psychological actions at mass scale, mm. uh, coding errors by other companies, AIs, and so yeah. on. Um, and you know, more power to them that within the context that they're operating, that's precisely and exactly what they should be doing. Yeah. Uh, but creating institutions that behave themselves appropriately, even when some or most or even all of the agents in the institution aren't people and can't be acculturated and, and don't care about you know, anything except for what's in their code base is relevant and going to be increasingly relevant to people that are trying to build economies, cultures, and, and governments in now and, and until we lose this access to this technology. But you're talking almost like a morality to this technology, right? isn't, isn't that what you're saying? Almost like a, what we would call in a human character. Where- I would call it an alignment. So what game theory is about is how a system of decisions evolves when every agent in the system has its own particular interest. Um, And so morality would be about deciding what good and bad interests actually are. That's, that's, that's above my pay grade. Like I'm not, I'm not hooked into people that can tell the difference between right and wrong or, or, you know, gods or anything like that. What I've found a way to do is create a, a system of rewards and punishments that aligns with the systemic outcomes that you would be interested in. So for, for a commodity marketplace, the interest of the commodity marketplace is a, thriving and continuously trading industry in whatever the commodified good is. Mm -hmm. And so here is how to create a relationship between these price makers and these two different kinds of price takers, which is stable and profitable for every individual member of every one of those, those stakeholders um, to use the modern terminology. So, 
if I were to make it go back to this casino example, the essence of what you, I think you're saying, Noah, is really that if we really think about gambling, there's like a net loss, right? If the if the if the odds are stacked in the favor of the casino, which we all know they are, but if they incrementally get, I love the expression of the the, the green paint flex. I've got this awful vision of a, a bright green uh, a casino. Which, <laughs> but anyway, right? <laughs> which they're continuously renovating. But the point being, the roulette wheel is becoming increasingly green. It's becoming increasingly stacked, and ultimately, when it comes to either a gambling context, there's a net loss because it means people are losing more money. The casino is becoming more, increasingly more um, powerful. And ultimately, there's less fun, actually, in terms of – and that's in that kind of the leisure context or the, kind of the entertainment context. But you're talking about in a commodity market, whereas the, the less fun or the less um, competition is really – where you've got industrial farmers losing out or you've got miners and the rich becoming richer, but there's actually a net loss there because as you, you, you that links right back to productivity because if you're increasingly paid less for doing the same work, then guess what? No one's going to do anything there or, or people say, it's just too hard. I'll try something else, right? Yeah, um, we're, we're cannibalizing our own wealth by allowing too much of it to be used up uh, just in making the deal. So this links beautifully back to like that intelligent performance piece, really, because it kind of, I guess the whole point of a marketplace, and this is you're talking about the marketplace of marketplaces in some regards, where you're identifying there's too much bias, let's say, over here on this exchange. Okay, cool. So where we should there should be a new type or an evolution in the marketplace where to find balance, and I guess that's that's the whole piece of supply and demand, right? where it becomes there an imbalance. Absolutely. Yeah. So so marketplaces, to some extent, compete with one another. Um, yeah. Uh, we only use one kind of marketplace, really, on planet Earth today, because the design that we presently use basically won on this axis, the, the, the open call auction model with futures pricing. Uh, had lower transaction costs and so it attracted people who could make more money by joining it and um within that model the bigger the marketplace is the better it is and so you get this sort of growing on growing on growing effect and Mm. so something like australian wheat will be priced in chicago whereas australian iron will be priced in london and there's nothing kind of special about that. American iron will be priced in London and British wheat will be priced in Chicago because all the wheat's priced in Chicago and all the iron's priced in London. Um, But markets that can stably offer even lower transaction costs uh, like mine can once started should come to dominate. And so uh, Australia could actually operate its own markets that, were capable of withstanding the sort of London, Chicago, New York juggernauts, and so could everyone else. In fact, in my country, different cities could could be the hub, or they could, you know, retain their crown by shifting in time to take over uh, this model. But that would be so the plan. Question is, the theory sound right? The question is really, is this efficient kind of inflection, or I don't know what you would call that, but that the difference between where there's, there's an obvious we've kind of gone off the road, but have we realized that there's a better option yet? 
and that kind of time between that's that's the challenge and and that's where i'm trying to put the message out to as many people as possible as plainly as possible to to try to get us closer and closer to that inflection because the numbers are not small uh the the costs being imposed by the present markets uh according to the latest u.s government figures uh are around 800 billion dollars and that number is almost nine years old and there's been a lot of inflation since then and a lot mm. of expansion of the financial system since then so mm. so that's pro it's probably in excess of a trillion dollars and that's just in the inside the united states so on the global level um uh these markets and other less efficient smaller markets uh i've spoken to people in india for example uh where not everything has been fully marketed out and they have they have transaction chains that are 20 agents long and so the the farmer grows something and sells it to someone who sells it to someone who sells it to something 20 times over before the mm. person sells it to the person that uses it and yeah. none of those intervening agents are working for free they all have to take their yeah. added chunk to make that worthwhile um and so that's what we're looking at right now as as new materials become more important um as as the technology shifts as as production becomes radically more efficient uh we're seeing a lot of those gains being chewed up rather than being reinvested into the economy yeah. uh, by inefficiencies in transaction yeah cool Noah, i think we've done a lot on this topic i think it's a really interesting one i'm i'm intrigued to hear what our listeners whether they've managed to stay with it because <laughs> i think it's um what we're talking about for a lot of people maybe highly conceptual but i think um but if you're in this world or if you know a little bit about commodity training in the marketplaces and the exchanges etc then you can certainly start to see the, the challenge um and the opportunity, I'd say, as well, for continually growing our collective global wealth rather than it kind of being stuck in some of the, uh, let's say, vested interest piece. With the casino, I think, is a, a useful example, actually. So, um, Noah, thank you so much for taking the time out to chat to us and, and sharing your ideas. Um, I've got here your website, coredisc.com, and we'll also link to your LinkedIn um, in the in the show bio here as well. If people have got probably follow-on questions, which I'm sure they have, and, and probably can do a much better job than I have in terms of um, kind of navigating this conversation. But, but thank you so much for your time. It's a real pleasure to have you on here.